Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, This week we are joined by Richard Seymour, who's the author of a new book, The Disenchanted Earth, Reflections on Eco-Socialism and Barbarism. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, Just to begin with, can you tell us a little bit about your career as a writer and how you came to this ecological awakening, which you, I guess the book kind of chronicles, doesn't it? Well, I started uh, writing as a blogger, really, um, I think I had always thought I wanted to be a writer, um, and uh, this seemed to be just the easiest way to do it on a regular basis and build up an audience. Um, and I did build up a highly niche kind of audience because it was far left politics that I was hawking, um, and uh, I, but that enabled me to, you know, learn the ropes. Um, gradually uh, acquire a sense of my own style, um, shed some bad habits. Uh, About 2006, I got uh, contact from someone in Verso asking me if uh, I would consider um, looking at uh, doing a book on uh, the upsurge of liberal imperialism, which was, um, you know, during the Gulf, the Iraq War, there had been a lot of liberals and former leftists coming out for Bush, coming up for the war in Iraq, a sort of project of right-wing adventurism, you know, not even sort of middle-of-the-road uh, democratic humanitarian interventionism, but outright um, uh, chaos. So um, I obviously I jumped at the chance, you know, um, and uh, I spent the next couple of years in libraries and doing interviews and researching as much as I could, and uh, digging into a history of about 400 years of um, humanitarian intervention, as it were. Of, of, well, not even that, of liberal justifications for empire, from Grotius and Locke, you know, justifications for slavery, racism, etc., uh, up to the sort of uh, high Victorian era of, uh, you know, John Stuart Mill, Alexis de Tocqueville, um, and their uh, alternative justifications for empire. Mill's basic... Uh, conception was that uh, the peoples of the colonial world were not yet fully adults they were not uh, you know they were of their nonage and they would not um, reach uh, full uh, democratic subjectivity and adulthood until they'd been schooled that way by their white colonizers Um, and you know throughout the 20th century the Fabians and uh, the sort of so-called liberal internationalists in the United States had a similar sort of um, approach, um, and this uh, overtly racist international politics isn't broken until the sort of movements of decolonization, and even there you've got a backlash uh, by the neoconservative right. But they gradually learn to speak the language of human rights and anti-totalitarianism and universalism rather than overt defenses of 
colonialism, white supremacy, and so on. Uh, although you would uh, get uh, some quite brutal um, arguments defending, for example, death squads and dictatorships because the alternative is communism, etc. Um, 1990s, you see a rebirth of uh, certain paternalistic arguments for empire in the idiom of humanitarian intervention. And that sort of kickstarts a whole process uh, wherein, um, you know, after 9-11, certain civilizational arguments that have been popular in the 19th century begin to gain real force um, in, in the popular imagination, and particularly in the imagination of intellectuals. We're in a fight to the finish, as Christopher Hitchens put it, you know, we're going to fight Islam, and Islam represents this alternative civilization. So um, that was um, the sort of thrust of my research for a few years, and that was my first book. And um for a first book, it did all right. Um, uh, you know, like I didn't expect it to sell amazingly, but um, it it got respect from the kinds of people I wanted it to get respect from, and it was hated by the kinds of people I wanted to hate it as well. Um, and from that, I started to get uh, into in, invitations to write the occasional article in the Guardian, etc. Um, so that by um, the early 2010s, I was writing a regular-ish column for The Guardian um, and, you know, churning out books. Um, and I don't know, before, since 2015, I've been a founding editor of Salvage magazine, one of the editors um, from a founding group of four. And uh, that has shaped a lot of my writing, including this, obviously, particularly the emphasis um that we began to develop, the consciousness we began to develop of uh, ecology, climate change. Um, so, you know, that's uh, a part of my background. A large part of it is also just the politics. You know, I was uh, a Trotskyist activist, a militant for, I don't know, 15 years, something like that. Um, and then uh, me and a bunch of others left uh, the Socialist Workers' Party um, because... Uh, there had been accusations of rape, which they had uh, covered up. And so we found ourselves um, looking at uh, a world in which the prospects for the left were quite bleak. And we no longer had this protective chassis of, um, uh, you know, a, a small party organization that's relatively homogenous and at least appears to be efficacious in some ways. Um, and so Salvage, uh, the magazine that we launched, was... Um, specifically you know what was uh, what was to be salvaged was what was salvageable from the left you know from the history of not just you know social democracy trade unions but specifically of communism and its failures and uh, the 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 ruinous experience of stalinism etc what is left out of all that what's left in the rubble what can we rebuild with um so it's uh, very much in the brechtian spirit of um don't look to the good old days look to the bad new things <laughs> uh, and so what particularly brought you to the ecological crisis in the book you kind of pin it on one kind of moment don't you um a walk yeah, in london I, I, think. I, I think sometimes uh you know um memory and um experience can be misleading in that way because uh, i'm sure that this was something that was building for a while but there just happened to be a day um and it was a uh, the warmest uh, Christmas on record, and there's been a few of those. 
um, and it was just a bit clammy. It wasn't um, spectacular. This wasn't, you know, a day in which there were wildfires sweeping the planet or, you know, uh, storms or polar perturbations, anything like that. It was just, it was odd. It felt really, really odd. It felt uncanny. But it also felt somewhat mournful because suddenly there was this uh, feeling that all of the um, stuff that, uh, in terms of the stuff of the natural world, the material of the world, um, that I was uh, used to taking for granted, that I just assumed would be there, um, and didn't really understand how much I valued, that a lot of that would no longer be there. Soon, nothing like I was used to would exist. Now, that can lend itself to a kind of conservative, nostalgic kind of politics, but that's not where I'm going with that. Uh, It's... um, Obviously, we, uh, you know, uh, the world changes, climates change, but there, uh, there are certain changes that are absolutely catastrophic. That's just, uh, you know, uh, that's uh, in the Marxist tradition. Benjamin, you know, talking about uh, slamming on the brakes uh, when a train is hurtling off into catastrophe. Um, so uh, there was that, um, and I refer to it as an icicle stab of grief because that very much felt what you know what it's like it was very sudden and very jarring um but as i say um we in the salvage collective had been talking about this and uh we've been talking about it because it was in the news because all of a sudden unlike in previous periods where you know you would occasionally see some manifestation of climate change but the manifestations were becoming very frequent very obvious very vivid you know hottest year on record suddenly um we're learning that um there there are fires in the arctic circle which you know there are always uh, some fires in the arctic circle but they're way worse than they've ever been uh you know the intensification of storms and so on and um when that's to happen, you uh, you start by trying to apply your traditional lenses, you know. Uh, so we were all Marxists of a particular hue, um, and you push it to its limits. You find how far it can go, and obviously there is uh, a rich body of Marxist writing from uh, Jason W. Moore, John Bellamy Foster, uh, Andres Malm, and so on, who. Um, write um, about the uh, sort of processes of ecological destruction, uh, but also about, um, you know, uh, the whole question of metabolism, uh, material throughput, energetics, and so on. Um, but obviously, um, the, the certainly our inherited versions of Marxism are in a state of some crisis, because one of the... Um, objects of you know the the marxist strategic purview is this you build up a material superabundance this is how you're going to create a society in which the muck of ages all the horrible conflicts um all the tendencies to exploit people all the tendencies to be racist and sexist you are going to create a society in which those things can be managed much more easily and in which uh plenty is going to mitigate the tendency towards conflict and also in which um, you don't have to uh, exploit anybody to generate uh, a huge amount of wealth. You know, uh, the whole point about capitalism is that it's produced uh, unbelievable amounts of wealth 
um, you know, in the uh, unprecedented in the history of humanity, but uh, in so doing, it has, uh, you know, massively accelerated the rate at which people are being exploited for their labor power. The idea is that you can create such plenty that um, actually we can now live in a relatively egalitarian, highly educated, high technology civilization. Sounds great. Um, uh, and uh, in its way, it was supposed to be more scientific than the kind of um, utopian socialists uh, or than the anarchists like Kropotkin uh, or uh, Bakunin, who would look at, uh, who would say that people were basically good and basically inclined towards mutuality and cooperation. And if you, uh, you know, if you just liberated uh, the basic decency of human beings from uh, the horrors of competition and poverty and so on, then you would bring out uh, our innate cooperativeness and goodness. Well, I'm vulgarizing there, obviously, and I'm not doing them justice. But uh, the point is that uh, we were supposed to be more sophisticated than that. But it turns out that we've now come up against a kind of problem that does doesn't allow us to contemplate traditional versions of red plenty. Um, the idea that there's just going to be a superabundance of stuff in the future is at least now heavily qualified because the stuff of the past, you know, what's the the main stuff energy right where are we going to get our energy from if not from fossil fuels fossil fuels basically uh gave capitalism a much longer lease in life than it, it need necessarily have had um but the whole of contemporary civilization and the whole uh, idea of plenty and abundance that we have is based upon it can we transition to 100 percent renewable uh, energies um and also keep uh, using as much energy and also keep uh, consuming as much stuff? No, manifestly not. We're um, overfishing, overfarming, we're acidifying the oceans, um, and I mean, we'll come back to this we in a second, but uh, we are doing all this stuff. Um, uh, and uh, even, for example, in a country like the United Kingdom, to transition to uh, 100% renewables. I think it would be a major, uh, I don't think it's really possible actually, but um, uh, according to FIRES, the the think tank looks into this, they've worked out a way in which it would be possible uh, according to their sort of projections, but they say very clearly, look, we're going to have about 60% of the energy then than we have now. Given that the population will have grown, given that living standards are supposed to have increased, given that we're supposed to be doing better then, to subsist on 60% of the energy that we're using now, it's a bit of a challenge. Now, some of that can be uh, achieved through greater energy efficiency. Some of it can be achieved by the fact that electricity just is more efficient than fossil fuels. Um, So you'll need to use less. But Overall, we're going to have to uh, use less energy and consume less stuff. And given the the role of agriculture in uh, climate change alone, just one of the many crises, uh, never mind mass extinction, we're going to have to change our diets, um, either severely restrict meat eating or uh, turn to vegetarianism or veganism. Um, uh, I'm open-minded on all of those uh, questions, but the point is that... um, for the first time, we're in a position of saying, actually, we're, you know, there are a lot of people who are in poverty. There are a lot of people who aren't particularly doing well out of life. Millions of people are being exploited, etc. But 
the collective impact of our consumption is problematic and even even working class people are going to have to change their consumption habits um, quite significantly. The question is, can we work out a way in which that's done, in which is actually registered as an improvement, as a, a felt, you know, in, in, increase in the quality of life? So um, there's all sorts of challenges that this poses, um, and I, for me, uh, there's the intellectual challenges, like trying to work it out, um, having never much paid much attention to uh, scientific literature, climate literature, and so on. Um, But also there's the emotional shift that was entailed by just looking at the state of the world and um, the planet specifically and thinking, what what is it that one values? Um, What am I attached to? and I found that for me, there are a number of things. I like the Arctic. I'm very fond of the idea of uh, these polar ice caps. I don't want them to disappear. I like the idea of a blue sky, so I don't want to whiten it by pumping it full of sulfate particles in the name of uh, geoengineering to keep out um, uh, sunlight. Um, I like uh, the abundance of life, the web of life. I don't know if this has anything to do with... Um, uh, E.O. Wilson's speculative idea of, um, uh, you know, uh, biophilia, you know, the idea that there's an instinct to uh, be fascinated with, enjoy, be enthralled by life. Uh, I think maybe there's something more fundamental, which is that matter itself is enchanting, or should be. Um, so there's the intellectual aspect there's the emotional aspect no doubt there's i'm very interested in psychoanalysis so i talk about this in terms of the unconscious um and our drives um but uh, all of that's got to be involved as well it can't just be um a question of the facts because we know something we know about human beings is we don't just operate on the basis of the facts there are all sorts of non-rational and irrational contributors to human behavior and that includes you and me sitting here right now Mm -hmm. i think one of the things i liked about the book especially is that it does open these enormous um sort of vistas of you talk about literature there's incredible quotes in there you take from you know the odyssey or robert mcfarlane or um and then you bring in scientific literature then psychoanalysis and one of the terms which i've sort of clung on to was this idea of the untimelik which i guess kind of attempts to interpret the sense that um you know, deep futures, deep pasts are suddenly entangled in present moments, especially in relation to capitalism, which I suppose is your particular interest. So could you tell us a little bit about your pun um, on Timelook? Well, um, this began uh, as a mundane reflection on um, the experience of being awake in the night and... uh, in those uh, hours when, you know, sometimes you can wake up and you can be quite uh, disoriented, you can be frightened, you feel small, um, and you can't tell how much time has passed. Is it a second? Is it an hour? The reality principle, as Freud referred to it, with all the temporal and physical laws of the world, appears to have momentarily disintegrated it. And 
there's a sense that normality will never return, even though you know you will wake up in the morning and get on with it. Because the this this experience um, in the middle of the night is saturated with dream life, you know. It's saturated with um, everything that was going on in your head while you were asleep that you were barely aware of. Um, and so when I talk about the untimelik, you know, this pun on Freud's concept of the un- unheimlich, the unhomely, the uncanny, um, I'm uh, sort of uh, talking about how the unconscious has seeped into the planet's records, um, uh, a sort of telluric telltale, the Anthropocene. Um, and uh, in terms of the strategi- stratigraphy, of um, sort of rock deposits, layers, and so on. It's very thin. It's barely sort of recognizable, but we're starting to appear in these deposits. And that is... What's creepy and uncanny about it is because it's not not just uh, something alien or other. It's both familiar and other. Lacan, uh, the French psychoanalyst, had a term for this. He called it extimate as opposed to intimate. There's something in you that is out of you. That It's the, the, the bit of the outside that sticks to the inside or the inside that belongs to the outside. And so when you think about um, uh, ecology, uh, there is, I mean, we know that it derives from the Greek word oikos, which uh, has to do with um, place to live, home, right? Um, in the same way that an economy has to do with a household uh, budget. Um, there's something horrifying about the homely. Um, there's something about it that bears the deepest part of our anxieties, the fear of annihilation, of being chewed up, poisoned, descending into madness. You know, children often have a fear. Well, they have all sorts of fears. One of them is, for example, being sucked down the bath hole. Um, you know, this is a common phobia. And, um, you know, the, the one can see in this the fear of being consumed by the mother, of being, in, uh, you know, eaten. Um, well, for Freud, the archetype of the uncanny is the maternal body and the way that in fantasy it becomes a grave. You, you, it eats you, you become a grave. Much as the earth mother is both a birthplace and a grave. So it's the dirt to which we return. Um, and human history uh, has been sustained by uh, uh, the idea, at least, of a relatively uh, stable accumulation of cultural knowledge, intelligence, descending from ancestors to offspring, and so on. Um, at least that's the idea. Capitalism obviously completely disrupts and upends all that. Though the idea of the ancestors is, is felt to be somewhat embarrassing now. Uh, unless you're uh, uh, attached to certain, for example, indigenous cultures where it's quite common to say we, we respect the ancestors, we worship the ancestors, we communicate with the ancestors. We, we tend to think the ancestry now is a, is a, is a gimmick. You know, you, you, you look up your DNA and you find out how much of your ancestry is Native American or whatever, um, all that sort of stuff. But uh, So we don't really have that connection. And then there's the sort of way in which uh, the sort of temporality of capitalism changes everything. So um, it's no longer, certainly it's not a a sense of progress in the enlightenment sense, you know, human progress. Um, And it's certainly not the cyclical sense of time that's established, uh, you know, in traditional societies on the basis of seasons and so on. Um, 
it's just the accumulation of stuff, the endless accumulation of stuff. Progress is nothing more than growth, GDP. Um, and growth uh, includes all sorts of stuff, not just good stuff. Um, you know, GDP goes up if there's a burglary, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, GDP goes up uh, sometimes if there's a war. Um, war has uh, the most extraordinary effects. Um, so um, we're finding that um, as uh, the temporality of capitalism just becomes uh, the eternal present, more of the same, more accumulation of stuff, um, it also starts to turn the cyclical time of seasons rather freakish. It starts to accelerate um, sort of eras and epochs uh, to the point where um, it's speeding so rapidly that it precipitates a crisis in the temporal order itself. You know, the fact that we could have a mass extinction, a megaphase change in microphase time. You know, the, you know, the mass extinctions historically take millions of years. We're speeding it up quite dramatically. All of this is happening and it's precipitating a crisis in this uh, temporal order itself. And we're spinning so fast, we may as well be standing still. And the Anthropocene is the name for this, not for the most advanced phase of human civilization, as if that was possible anymore, but a sudden derailing, a spin-off reality, a meltdown. And so um, that's the experience of the untimelike. And uh, it's um, very palpable once... Um, you start to pay attention to what's happening. Uh, another example, the death spiral in the Arctic. Human beings have never existed without uh, uh, polar ice caps. Um, they're essential to the um, sort of climate, the global climate that enabled human beings to thrive. Um, and, uh, you know, we are creating a, a sort of a, a rapidity of warming which uh, is possibly unprecedented, and we're driving the world to... Basically, the last IPCC report suggests uh, possibly 3.2 degrees, um, maybe more um, is quite plausible, we'll get to over 4 degrees. Um, last time the world was 3.2 degrees above uh, pre-industrial temperatures, I think was about 15 million years ago. Sea levels were uh, tens of meters higher than they are now. The world uh, was uh, a very different kind of place. So we're, um, we're um, creating uh, through uh, the logic, the grammar of capitalism, and through the incentives that it creates for us, um, uh, uh, we're creating a, a radically new temporality for the planet, one which may actually wipe out the human species. That's entirely possible. That's on the more catastrophic end of events, but I think it would be rather stupid not to not to game that scenario, not to think through, how would we get there? Um, what are we going to do about that? You know. And here, it's, I think it's important to make a distinction between... Um, uh, on the one hand, a kind of uh, survivalist uh, logic, which it truly is apocalyptic because uh, basically survivalism just says uh, there's no possibility to do anything. I don't believe in the collective will to change anything. The people are stupid. The masses are sheeple. I'm going to go and live in a mountain somewhere um, and stock up on goods um, and wait for it all to come crumbling down. And that's the apocalyptic uh, mentality, truly, in some sense, relishing it, addicted to it, hooked on it, like the QAnons, you know, bring on the, the storm, the day of reckoning. Um, 
Well, we are, uh, what I'm talking about is certainly an attention to a form of um, apocalypse. You know, the apocalypse is very possible, but it'll be much more mundane and boring and difficult and dreary. And um, it will do the usual things um, in terms of it will hurt the poor first. It will hurt the, hurt the racially oppressed first. It will destroy the nations of the global south first. Um, but um, and its its effects will spread out from there. Um, but the the point of uh, contemplating the worst possible scenarios uh, is not to get uh, hooked on it, not to become uh, fixated on the image, enthralled by the image of disaster, but to um, mobilize uh, intelligent constituencies capable of do- taking action to stop the catastrophe that we're hurtling towards. Mm-hmm. It, I, I want to ask a question on agency and sort of connect it with this untimely uh, term. I, I remember Freud writing, writing on the uncanny says that one of our experiences of the uncanny can come about when we see somebody suffering from a seizure. And that kind of brings about the idea that they might, um, it's kind of like the mechanical within the biological person and this idea that they've lost agency, I suppose. Um, yeah, do you, does that kind of chime with your reading of maybe popular writings on the you know climate catastrophe? This idea that there's just a continuous march forward, and you know people feel somewhat uh, unable to do anything, or there's a lo- there's a loss of agency and you know political discourse, perhaps. I mean, I hadn't uh, thought of it in that way, um, and it sounds uh, sounds like a plausible and suggestive idea. Um, but I don't think I should uh, pretend that I have any deep thoughts about that. That just sounds like uh, something uh, we should leave hanging because it's it, it, it might actually be quite productive. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, so I guess we should move forward and talk about uh, climate sadism, which uh, you do write about in the book. Um, in your previous book, uh, The Twitter Machine, you discuss um, social media, well, especially Twitter, I guess, right? Um, and I wanted to ask, in climate sadism, you refer to people who own SUVs and they do so in order to, you know, say, uh, you know, to own the libs, I think you say. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, there's there's a lot of this um, uh, posturing. Um, uh, you remember uh, every time Greta Thunberg would open her mouth, uh, there would be a lot of um, what in the United Kingdom is colloquially known as gammon, uh, a lot of older men, uh, very red-faced, um, working themselves up into uh, both um, uh, erotic excitement and fury over uh, her. And um, part, of the, part of the logic of this would be, you know, well, I'm going to go and buy a sub and then uh, I, I, you know, I'm going to drink Greta Thunberg's tears, you know, this kind of pathetic uh, social media posturing. Not particular to the right, by the way. Uh, you know, you see a lot of that on the left and, you know, more generally. But um, this particular version of it is so, like, you're such a care lord. You care about the environment. Well, if you care so much about the environment, I'm going to smash its face in. And I'm going to really enjoy it. Now, one of the things that Freud um, sort of tells us is that um, there, you know, the the I, the self, is a bit of an illusion. Um, you know, the, the ego is a fantasy. It's a fantasy of a co- contained, um, uh, sort of coherent individual self. 
um, and that actually when you when you look at people uh, you, you, there are different idioms for talking about this but most people contain others you know so object relations theorists would say you know other people are represented in your psyche by a particular mental object which you have constructed um, and which you valued in a particular way okay well you know that's one way of talking about it. Uh, Lacanians would uh, talk about it in another way. But basically, we can say that um, however we are made up, we are made up of our relationships to others. Um, and so, um, in a sense, um, when we start to, let's say, uh, engage in uh, acts of uh, demonstrative sadism, uh, towards others, there's always a sense in which we are also um, identifying with them as the victims. Uh, there's also a sense in which we are enthralled by uh, the kind of masochistic position. You know, the typical triangulation is uh, you're uh, the victim, the victimizer, and the onlooker, the passive onlooker. Well, okay, so you tri- triangulate between these perspectives, um, and that's true. Of, that's just a formula for fantasy. It's true whether you're watching porn or whether you're watching snuff footage or whether you're watching, uh, you know, a cop beating or something like that. Um, that sort of stuff is always going on. So it's it's worth not being too impressed by this uh, machismo, you know. In a way, what one is doing by saying, you know, I'm going to smash the environment's face in just to see the look on your face, you idiot, um, is you're waging war, um, you're engaging in a counterattack upon your own desire. Um, and uh, in a way... Uh, uh, we always, you know, do that when we're talking about uh, social and emotional pain. Um, there's always a choice as to whether we identify with the person who is suffering and empathize with them and uh, therefore um, potentially try to engage in some sort of reparative action. Although I should be cautious and careful about this because empathy can actually be quite horrendous. Um, empathy can be um, can be accompanied by uh, unbelievable viciousness. So uh, I don't want to pretend that if we just develop our uh, sympathetic imagination, we can then uh, heal one another and heal the world. No, that's not what I'm saying. But uh, we are making a choice uh, about how we identify and disidentify with other people. And we're always kind of doing both at the same time. Um, so I don't. I, I, I'm saying yes. This this uh, this is a short note on climate citizen, but I'm saying that uh, there is. It's it's a tendency. It's a rhetorical pattern. Clearly, there's uh, going to be. Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, people who are being mobilised for the idea uh, of mass death. Um, we saw this in the storm in Texas. Um, you know, where a lot of people were uh, dying, either freezing to death or they were dying because they had decided to warm up their house by turning on the car and then they were breathing in the carbon monoxide and choking themselves. Um, You know, people were in desperate situations because of this uh, unprecedented storm, you know, bringing sub-zero temperatures to Texas, a state that usually uh, is not suffering sub-zero temperatures. 
um, uh, and the electricity went out and all the rest of it. Well, you saw a lot of people saying things like, uh, you know, there were displacements, there was an attempt to blame the left, blame the Green New Deal, it's all their fault, etc. That's why we don't have power. But um, there was a quite telling moment where um, a local mayor um, said he was sick of all these whiners and losers begging him for help and not realizing that actually, you know, only the strong survive in this world. Um, now, that didn't quite work out as he wanted it to. He was forced to resign. Um, but um, that was because he he didn't sort of make a distinction um Let's say, you know, if, if he'd been able to, he could have said um, that he was or implied that he was talking about black people, you know, let them die, you know, like racialize the question. That's uh, one way in which you can get away with um, sort of justifying mass death. Uh, another way uh, we saw during the pandemic, I don't know if you remember all those Republican politicians saying, hey, look, you know, the people of this country would rather, you know, uh, grandparents would rather die for the freedom uh, of their young than go under lockdown. Basically, they're saying that, uh, you know, a lot of people will die to keep capitalism going, even if it means, uh, you know, uh, mass uh, uh, illness and mass death. Uh, and Jesus Christ, America has already got over a million deaths as a result of this. Um, and who knows how reliable that is, because the uh, the government did not keep reliable data for the first months of the pandemic, so we don't actually know how many people have died. So the point is that um, uh, there is a general um, a pattern wherein uh, politicians of the right are uh, developing you know, they're no longer saying if you vote for us, we'll keep the, you know, we'll conserve things, we'll keep things stable, uh, we'll protect you from the bad guys, um, uh, we'll keep uh, the poor, we'll keep blacks, we'll keep gays out of your community, and we'll allow you to become rich. Uh, they're now saying uh, a lot of people are going to have to die um, in order um, to um, uh, keep anything as it was. Um, in order to prevent, uh, you know, some terrible catastrophe, you know, it's you notice that the the catastrophic imagination is very popular on the right. You know, white genocide, uh, death panels, you know, the Great Replacement, all of this stuff, and the people who believe that stuff tend to be the ones who either commit mass shootings or um, engage in some other catastrophe-inducing behavior, like the um, uh, storming of the Capitol. Um, so this, uh, with regard to climate change, there's um, going to be an emerging subjectivity which is not climate denial, but uh, affirmation. Bring it on. Warm up the planet. We're going to be fine. It's you guys that aren't going to be fine. We're going to be fine. We're going to build. This country is going to be a green zone. Uh, we're going to keep out the immigrants. And uh, we're going to take care of ourselves and whatever energy we need, we're going to, going to go out there and get from the world. Um, if we need uh, materials for renewable energy, we're going to go out there and get it. In other words, it's a very militarized, paranoid, isolationist, uh, in one manner of speaking, imperialist in another manner of speaking, solution. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's the kind of danger that we're up against. And that has much more popular appeal than you would think if you just assumed that people are, you know, uh, rational self-maximizers uh, pursuing enlightened self-interest or anything like that. That's manifestly not the case. 
And just before we go, um, you said this is just your first book on the ecological crisis. So would you be able to give any hints of uh, what kind of aspects you're looking at for the future? I am working on another book about this. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I've got some books on the go, and one, one of them is about uh, climate change and mass extinction. Um, I, I don't want to... Because the, the thing is not fully formed in my mind yet... Um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I'm particularly interested in uh, the problem of mass extinction. Um, and uh, uh, I guess our effective relationships to uh, not just the planet, which can seem like an abstract thing, um, but to um, uh, non-human life um, and to uh, and, and obviously the way in which that affects our politics and um, what um, what happens to our uh, our social relations with uh, other humans when our social relations with animals uh, non-human animals are let's say exploitative um, uh, uh, eliminationist you know um, all that kind of stuff so um, I'm interested in pursuing that and We'll write a book on it, which will probably have the characteristic uh, blend of uh, Marxism, psychoanalysis, um, literary references. A lot of I'm reaching, um, you know, for the t- top shelf and the cultural canons here to be as impressive as possible. Um, although, actually, I mean, this is just um, this is a subject. Um, I remember Jacqueline Rose uh, uh, when she was interviewed a few years ago. She said uh, there are many subjects you leave behind. And she'd just written a book about Palestine. She said, Palestine is one of those things you don't leave behind. It's not a subject you move on from. Well, that's also true for me of climate change. Um, So uh, when I say this, the first book on climate change and ecology and the planet and nature and nature writing, I can't see that I will uh, be doing anything other than writing lots and lots of stuff about this um, for the foreseeable future. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. We look forward to reading you more. All right, brilliant. Uh, Thanks for talking to me. Um, I look forward to seeing this published.